0: Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Fred, welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan. So, Fred, we've known each other for a few years, but maybe for folks who don't know, I know this is a hard question because... On your LinkedIn, you're one of the people who has the best description of what their job title is. It says, or I think it's parentheses, experimenting in life without a job description. <laughs>
1: so how would you describe what you're doing these days? It is really hard because I, I really no longer have sort of one job identity. I'm a father of two young children. I, I live a pretty quiet life in, in upstate New York, in a wonderful community. And professionally, I've had sort of two larger projects in recent years, one that you might or might not even know about, uh, because it's mostly been in, in French, um, around the topic of how to communicate with the soul of babies before they can speak. So it's a whole different part of my life. And then probably the part of my life that makes that we ha- are having this conversation is that I published a book in 2014 called Reinventing Organizations that just became this totally unexpected sort of worldwide success, just word of mouth, and has just been a wonderful, a wonderful adventure. And... You know, before writing the book, I, I researched a number of truly outstanding organizations whose founders or leaders were sort of dissatisfied with you know, the way we're supposed to run organizations, you know, what we're being told in, in business schools. Like that just didn't feel right for them. They had often done quite a bit of a personal, sometimes even spiritual journey. And from that perspective, we're just relating with people and the purpose of their projects in entirely different ways. And so they no longer wanted to be sort of the, the lone person sitting at the top of the pyramid, they no longer wanted to be shouting down orders. So there's a whole bunch of things they no longer wanted to do. And then they started really sort of throwing all of that out. And of course, it's easy to throw things out, but then, you know, what do you put instead? Like, you know, you know, what are the practices for people to collaborate in, in productive ways? It was so striking for me that research is how extraordinary these organizations were that they, you know, ended up, you know, creating with these new practices and processes they put in place. But also how often strikingly similar these organizations were in their practices, even though they didn't know of each other. And so that really made me feel as if you know, these different organizations were somehow tapping into sort of the same, whatever you want to call it, perspective, worldview, consciousness that is just emerging at this very moment in time. And that's just been, you know, extraordinary for me to research. And it's made that I, you know, I, I look at organizations in a whole different way now. And that's what people tell me very often that we've read the book is like, you know, once I've seen this, I can no longer unsee it, you know. <laughs> and so I look at traditional organizations in a very different way, like, you know, as almost as if they were sort of pathetic you know? <laughs> or at least in bad need of upgrade. And what's been extraordinary now is just to see that there's just probably hundreds or thousands of organizations that I hear of that you know are in the middle of pretty radical transitions, and, and, and the stories there are just are just extraordinary. Yeah, I recently saw a
0: video of you doing an interview with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> Could you maybe describe how was that experience, just sitting next to the Dalai Lama and trying to explain reinventing organizations to him? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, so, so it was, as I was preparing this, I was wondering. So this was sort of part of the conference where you you know supposed to share you know some of your findings and research with the dalai lama and i was just like wondering like how do i even talk to you know his holiness like you know hey dalai you know let me teach you one thing or two about organizations you know? like, <laughs> in case you're still running your whole thing a bit autocratically you know? like, <laughs> I mean, it was a, little, a pretty extraordinary experience i mean for one if i'm really honest like this is just a wonderful mark of recognition for me, this is more sort of interesting as a recognition than, you know, whatever, being a a business review. Or, you know, like, and just the, you know, he was tired that that particular day, but, you know, he asked his translator to translate pretty much everything. So, so there, there seemed to be sort of keen interest, even though that's not you know, particularly his field. And the reception I just received from the audience, there were two standing ovations. I mean, there's just something that happened, you know, 2000 people in the room and, you know all these people standing there's just something that that happened that day that i don't talk often even though i I really like to do it but i think there's something around this message that is just so hopeful in a time where you know we we see all of our current systems sort of crumbling and uh, you know being at the end of their their life cycle and so i think one of the reasons for this really unexpected success of this book is simply that, that so many of us are sort of yearning to actually have a little bit of clarity of you know what's the way out you know, what 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 is on the other side you know what what is the new systems that are that are currently emerging and it's like that. I think that happened that particular morning with the Dalai Lama I didn't see
0: at the end of the video, but did he start to respond to your explanation and kind of give some
1: thoughts or opinions on it yeah, I think he was interested by some of the things he like he was also warning and I think it's a it's a perfectly valid warning to think that any model you know will fit everyone you know it's it's just deeply part of his his thinking you know also when it comes to religion right that you know, it's it's good to have this diversity of religions, right? It's good, you know, that that people are where they're at. And so, I don't know if 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 he felt that maybe I was presenting this as sort of this is the only way forward, or this is the only, you know, uh, or if he was just more broadly saying, you know, we have all of these different ways to think and run organizations that I write about in the first part of the book, and each one has has had its merits in in history. And so, I think he was he was spot on. I'm never trying to convince anybody who isn't already open to seeing these you know, about these new ways of operating, because to more traditional folks, to more traditional CEOs, this just sounds so radical that it's crazy, right? And for other people who have been ready for this and have who've been suffering with the existing model, they just read it and it's just obvious. They just go like, of course, this is what we need to do, right? So it's it's really interesting, depending on how we look at the world, you know, how the same practices can seem totally crazy or just the most obvious thing to do.
0: I'm curious, you know, it's been two or three years since the book was out. The first year after was when I first heard about you and reached out. And, and there's a lot of yeah. I think you had a New York Times article. And I, I know you're doing a lot of public speaking. I'm curious, you know, in the last maybe year or, or two years, what's sort of been your experience with the longer tail of the book's impact? Have you continued to see it?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I, I self published a book, there was zero marketing, I, you know, I'm not on social media. So I mean, it was the kind of book that is really doomed for failure, because like, that's exactly what you're not supposed to do when you self-publish. But I was just lucky that it was picked up by word of mouth. So it never had sort of a, a wild peak or anything. Actually, the one, the article you're referring to in the New York Times, I think was just in the online edition. And it was the only, so there have been no articles at all in any major publication. So it's just been sort of this steady rise. And it's just now sort of plateau, but it's staying at this at the same plateau. So it's not really going down and now all the translations are coming online and some of the translations are just ca- selling like crazy because they have traditional publishers who do more traditional sort of marketing and pushing and stuff so i'm curious too i'm curious too. like how long will this last i always thought like this like a books have life cycles and this should have dropped already but it's still going nicely and it's really strange because you know at some level the majority of people have never heard about it like in mainstream business right you know it, it hasn't been picked up on and at the same time there's like 200,000 copies that have been sold and so within circles that are open for it i think pretty much everyone starts to know about it. And it's almost become, you know, people throw around words like teal and like, you know, so, so I I do feel that in those circles that are open for it, it has really served a function of changing the narrative from, you know, what was broken with management to what is possible.
0: Just for folks who don't know, some of the companies, at least in the US that are particularly Patagonia, and know in the Netherlands, are there other companies perhaps that have emerged that you've seen as like, ooh, I've, you know, I could include them if I wrote the book now.
1: Yeah, there's, uh, there's one or two companies that I like, oh, you know, shoot, I would have loved to hear about them. There's one company that does amazing things in the field of you know wholeness, how to allow and bring wholeness to the interactions and in the organizations and to people. Um, and it's uh, a company in Los Angeles running movie theaters called Decurion that was written about, that I discovered through um, Bob Keegan at Harvard, who, who wrote a, a book uh, that included this, this company. And there's another number of one or two other ones. Um, there's also like just where you are at. Maybe you know them. I thought this amazing small book um, called um, Sacred Commerce about the Gratitude Cafes. They're uh, like a chain of, of coffee shops. They're not afraid of like really beautiful sort of spiritually informed practices, but spiritual, not in the sense of religious, but simply, you know, how can we honor you know what is deepest and most essential in, in each of us? And this beautiful little book around that. And I also thought like, hey, you know, too bad that I didn't hear about them. Let me tell you one anecdote, uh, just because I think you'll appreciate that you know the Matthew Engelhardt writes about in this book that just blew my mind, and it's one of those things. As often, like it's so shocking, and at the same time, what you think about it, it's so obvious, right? So they run these coffee shops, and in, in one of the coffee shops in the Bay Area, you know, one of the persons working there, you know, obviously was stealing money from the till, so money was, you know, disappearing, and so the founder called a meeting, you know, outside of hours with everyone working there, right? And I would have made, expected him to t- to say, hey, you know, this is beyond the limits, this is unacceptable, and we have to find a way to deal courageously with this. And what he said just blew my mind. He he started by apologizing and saying. I can't believe that with everything we're trying to do, we haven't been able, I haven't been able to create a space that is safe enough for a person who is obviously in real difficulties in real dire straits to be able to voice that. And that that person felt like he or she had to steal money because he or she couldn't talk about. And what a failure on our part that we haven't created a space that is safe enough for people to show up whole and to share where they're at in the difficulties and for us to collectively seek for solutions. But well, I, I, this blew my mind, and you know he, the stealing stopped. Nobody stepped forward to talk about it. But then, like a year or two later, a person resigned and said, "Hey, by the way, you know, at the time it was me, and for all sorts of reasons, I wasn't able to come forward with it." And but you know, the, the stealing stopped, and you know everybody, you know, it's, it's just, just I, I thought it was just such a beautiful. I love a, that beautiful. story. But coming back to your questions about you know other organizations. What I'm also just excited about is to hear about all these organizations who are in the middle you know, of fundamental transitions inspired by my book, or sometimes you know, they didn't need my book, or, or the book was just one more thing to help them along the way. And frustratingly, some of the really big ones, like there's some organizations, you know, 6,000 people or 60,000 people you know, who are really doing big things, and they don't want to go public about it, um, which is a bit frustrating for me. For instance, here in the US, there's a, a Wall Street-listed US-based but global manufacturing company that has like 6,000 people. They have probably like 60 locations around the world, and but they're Wall Street listed, and so they don't feel like you know, they want to go public about it because probably most investors wouldn't understand what they're trying to do. You know, sometimes it's a bit frustrating. There's a number of organizations in Europe on 60,000, 200,000 people who are doing really radical experiments. And again, they don't want to go public about it, and it's burning my tongue to say more about it. but Yeah. <laughs> So that is, I think, an interesting reflection on our times where there's a number, not hundreds, but a handful or two of CEOs of really large organizations who really understand that the system is broken, which I didn't think they were ready for yet. But some of them are really ready to to say that. And simply, you know, they feel like the press or certainly the investors would give them a very hard time, you know, so the times are ready and aren't ready, right? Um, So they're ready for all of the privately owned companies. And there's lots of them out there and who feel totally open to talk about it because the, the owners are happy to talk about it. But when it comes to the really the big elephants, you know, it's just sort of at this tipping point, I
0: feel. Yes, it's kind of similar to the B Corp movement where there's larger companies who are looking at it. And there's actually just one company that went public as a benefit corporation. So they now have this legal duty to consider more than just profits when making decisions. And there was a big fear that when they did that or whoever did it first, Wall Street would punish them because it's sort of like they don't understand a company that would consider more than just profits. But the company's doing fine. It's called Laureate Education. But it's kind of curious that, like you said, we're sort of, we're almost in between two stories. I've been reading, uh, do you know Charles Eisenstein? Yeah, of course. Yeah, the story of separation, right? Now we're kind of coming to the story of interbeing. Very interesting. How has the election of Donald Trump (laughs) affected your outlook on life? Do you see this as evidence of, oh, no, the shadow is still so strong, and we're actually a lot less far along than we thought? Or do you see a silver lining as like, this is just the shadow emerging, but it's necessary to emerge in order to move past it? Or
1: how do you kind of feel? I had just moved to the United States two or three months earlier. So it, it, it really was a shock for me. And I really fell down for quite a while. So it, it did affect me, especially knowing that it wouldn't affect me in the sense of, you know, I would probably be one of the last to be affected because, you know, I'm white, I'm self-employed, and you know, I have all sorts of privileges, quote unquote, right? Um, and so many people would be hurt before I would. But it, it came on the tail of when I moved here, I, I started reading quite a bit on race because I wanted to understand, you know, as a white man moving to the United States from Europe, you know, what, what race is like and... I still plan to read in the same way about you know Native Americans and you know sort of, there are these two sort of huge founding crimes of of this country right and what struck me reading about race it was really depressing for me was to see how you know this, this sort of this white supremacy and and you know and, and the racism is always morphing like every time it looks like there's there's a victory, it just takes another form in another shape right and and so I think that was one of the reasons I, why I was so depressed with the trump election of seeing hey you know actually appealing to all of these lowest instincts, you know, there's still all of that base, you know, that is resonating with that. So now, if I do take a step back, I do see that there is, I think, sort of an evolutionary value in this of sort of bringing shadow to the light, and that there's real value in just showing how exhausted our systems is, including our democratic system. So this might be a whole different stream, and I don't know how deeply we want to go into that. But just as I have sensed that we are invited to fundamentally rethink how we manage organizations, I think that. Democracy, as we're practicing it, you know, is, is, is past its due date. Just as with organizations, there's all of this experimentation happening all around the world of systems where we no longer delegate our power away for four years, but systems where crowd on massive scales can actually come together and make powerful decisions. And I started researching this a little bit. You know, we actually now know how to do these just like with these organizations and, and it works. I think we're just not ready for it from our mental perspective, or, you know, we, we're not maybe ready to see that possibility, but the actual systems are robust and they work. And, and so I think what this just points to is how exhausted the system is where we are powerless sort of 99.9% of the time, except these few minutes where we vote. And even then, you know, our vote is sort of restrained to Hillary versus Trump. And so in big part, I, you know, I see what's happening here, but also in Brexit and in many places in Europe as sort of an adolescent rebellion of people that, you know, if they're still treated as as having no power, will rebel in stupid ways. And what this is indicating for me is we need to build systems where citizens you know, can contribute as adults and no longer delegate their power away.
0: I'd love to dive in that a little bit. So, is it direct democracy, large-scale decision making? Maybe you could explain more about you know this idea of we're currently delegating power out for four years. What sort of the systems that you've seen working on maybe a larger scale where it's more direct?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's stuff happening all around the world. If I take just one piece, for instance, or you know, because it's this is one that's happening in quite a few places in the United States. There's one thing called participatory budgeting that was started in Brazil and Porto Alegre in 1989, and and it's the idea that municipal levels, but you can imagine at other levels, the discretionary spending of the budget, so the thing that you can freely sort of allocate, rather than having you know elected officials decide where it goes, you actually organize something where everyone in the community can contribute projects. People are helped and coached, and you know to flesh out their projects, to present them, and then you know everyone who wants to participate puts in their money. So like you know if there is like 10 million budget, and you know there is whatever that municipality, 100,000 people living there. It basically means that everybody has $100. So everybody just allocates. And there's some some sort of crowd intelligence that happens where the right projects get get funded. And, you know, there's now 3,000 cities around the world that are doing this every year. I mean, it just multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. Because what you see is that mayors who do this get reelected every time. (laughs) Because suddenly, you know, people, you know, feel that they're really part of the whole thing. But basically, what the mayor does is he delegates his power away to the crowd to actually make these budgeting decisions. What you also see happening is that people just get so involved. People create projects, you know, people get together. There's dialogues happening, community, you know, this into being that you were talking about. And so no one is no longer powerless. And so if somebody complains, just like any self-managing organizations, you know, it, it won't take very long for somebody to say, well, you know, if you don't like it you know, in three months, you can submit your project. So why don't you go and submit your thing? And so that fundamentally alters the nature of the relationship. What I've just talked about budgets, there's similar things happening around legislations or around regulations, or famous examples in Iceland, where they, they you a know, crowd rode uh, a whole new constitution um, that's been ranked very highly by by legal scholars. And and so there's all of these things happening in, in these different domains, which are really exciting. Yeah, it's really curious. I've been interested in
0: what seems like with participatory budgeting, it's almost like a step, right? Because then you still have the sort of mayored the, the grownups are the last ones to decide. And I think what was really interesting about reinventing organizations, and at least some of the companies, like I think AES is one where mm-hmm. you actually are the decision maker. So there's no one above you to sort of say yay or nay. I'm curious on the like the political side, have you seen anything like that? Rather than electing somebody else to make the decisions, it's actually the people who are making the decisions, but like large groups of people?
1: They aren't an example of that yet, because people still have to play within the existing system. But what it shows is that, you know, so you have, you know, areas where parliaments have basically outsourced their whole deliberation and, and proposal project. And we're still at the stage where, yes, the parliament has to rubber stamp it, because that's just how our institutions are built up, right? But what I can totally see happening is, as trust grows in these systems, people will come in and say, like, but what's then still the role of the parliament? Why do we still, you know, need somebody to rubber stamp things when actually much more democratic process, you know, has actually come up with great solutions, right? Or why do we actually still need a mayor who would, you know, who has the formal power of actually validating something, you know, so I, I think I think we're still certainly a whole number of years away from that realization. But the more we practice these things, right, the more we'll come to see that we actually don't need these grown ups, as you call them, because the grown ups are actually in the room deliberating and making decisions. One other question on the book is knowing what you know
0: now, is there anything you would have done differently in writing or the sort of launch of the book? I'm kind of curious your thoughts on that.
1: So, yeah, there's a few companies that I wish I had known about, like, you know, Decurion and Cafe Gratitude and these kind of things. But other than that, there's some areas where I feel like there's often misunderstandings that people have, you know, around self-management. Like the standard misunderstanding is that self-management is is a free-for-all. Like anybody can just do whatever they want. It's no processes, no practices, no, you know, no structure. And and so I feel like have I not been clear enough? But then when I look at the book, like I I don't, I don't think I could have said it more often than that, right? Like no, no, self-management. It's you know, it's there are structures. It's just different structures, and they're still you know, to, but maybe I wasn't clear enough, right? Um, and also on sort of this piece that you know this evolutionary purpose. I think I could also maybe at times have been more clear that what I'm talking about is not so much organizations having a noble purpose. Like some people simply equate that with having a noble purpose, right? Which is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is this notion that you no longer project things onto the organization, you no longer sort of try to predict and control the future for the organization. You're actually sort of constantly sensing and responding by listening to the purpose of the organization. And so some people sometimes, I think, still make a shortcut of thinking that that just means having a noble purpose. And then we can still continue doing our five year plans and Sort of you know a strategic planning in the old way, which is you know which is not what, what I was trying to convey. Because really, I think we you know you've written an article about this, right? What reinventing organization talks about is, is really sort of the internal practices, you know, is basically management, right? What I'm not really talking about is what these organizations do in the outside world, like how much they participate in you know regenerating you know the biosphere and you know what they do on you know socially outside of the organization, which is you know what, what B corps you know is are about, and which is really the stuff that you're you're involved in in these ways, these two things are very complementary. Right? So what I was looking for was really mostly sort of the internal structures and, and practices. What are you most excited about right now, either
0: on a personal or professional level?
1: Actually, for the moment, I'm in part taking a step back because my wife is just so excited about a book she's writing, and it's all consuming to her. And so I, we've just decided that's literally two weeks ago that, you know, we tend to have a pretty 50-50% split of task but uh, going forward for a number of months, I would do a disproportionate share of the task around the house and with the children and so that she can focus as much as she can and wants on the writing. Other than that, I mean, I'm, I'm still excited to hear about organizations who are in their transition. And, and so I, one of the things that I, I think I might start doing relatively soon is maybe shoot a, a series of 50, 60 videos. Um, so very simple. I'm just going to put a camera in front of me and, and shoot myself. Um, and in sharing some of the lessons learned of organizations who are in this transition. I see some common pitfalls, some common mistakes, but I also see some brilliant things that I wouldn't have thought about. And so every time I hear from one of these organizations, I speak with you know CEO or, or a team in one of these organizations, I I'm just so excited by what I see and learn. And so I have this whole list of things, and I think it could be a really powerful way to share some of those learnings because I'm tired of writing. I feel like. Yeah, these, these videos could be a very easy way for me to do this. And also a very easy way for people to share it. Like I, I could totally see somebody in an organization watching one of these short videos and they going like, whoa, whoa, this is exactly sort of the trap that we're falling into. Hey guys, everyone needs to see it. And a video might then be a much easier way to share it than, than a new book. So that's one of the things that I will probably do next to the other things. Um, I'm pretty involved here in my local little eco-village and spend a lot of time with my children. So there's very actually very few hours I have. I'm trying to stay abreast somewhat with this overload of emails I receive. And, and maybe... I will continue researching a bit on these new forms of political governance and, and maybe that has a book in it um, at some point it's
0: funny you mentioned video and for me this podcast came from being tired of writing <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: because you can uh, talk to someone and just sort of get the essence and it's you know it's just uh, it's an interesting conversation as opposed to uh, here let me interview you and I'll record it and then I'll write it all down and like synthesize it in an article so uh, I, I support your <laughs> your notion of doing something more visually or auditorially. <laughs>
1: You were uh, mentioning Charles Eisenstein before, you know, is this author that I that I also very highly respect. I think he you know he just writes amazing things. And the other day I, I spent some time with one of his close friends and person who works with him, and she told me that he just writes something and his first draft is perfect. Is like immediately publishable. And I was so frustrated to hear that. <laughs> I'm so jealous of that because that is so not my not my you know, my strengths. you know I I think my strengths is in researching and structuring, but the actual writing you know it just takes me three or four rounds of edits before the thing is actually publishable and it just takes so much time <laughs> and so when i heard that and i and i suspected it because i mean he just writes you know beautifully and his writing is just crystal clear and i, I almost suspected that you know this guy is just able to <laughs> get his first draft perfect yeah. i
0: remember listening to an interview with michael lewis who wrote like hardball or moneyball about the baseball team who, who does you know sort of they use computer algorithms to choose their best players. Yes. It, it is like yeah, Flash Boys. And he said that once he does, some, he does some initial research, but then he just writes and it's, it's so much fun for him. He has headphones and he's laughing to himself. I'm like, oh, I hate you. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, I resonate with that. Uh, it's difficult writing. What about for folks who are curious, what's the book besides reinventing organizations that you most often give as a gift?
1: Oh, that's a good question because I, I often buy sort of books in bulk just to give them away. Um, yeah, so there's this author called Parker Palmer, who is this beautiful, wise old man. He's now in his seventies and I just love everything he writes. I mean, you know, every sentence he writes is just, it's just perfect. You know, it just stands on its own. And it's just every sentence is just infused with so much wisdom, but, but also sort of humility and, and humor. And so he's written about community. He's written about the inner life. And there's a small book that he's written that's called Let Your Life Speak. And the subtitle is Listening to the Voice of Vocation. And it's just a wonderful book to offer people who are just unsure where where they're meant to go, who might be for the first time at the stage where they ask that question differently, like no longer in sort of a career perspective, but somehow feel that that perspective is, is no longer interesting to them. But then like wonder, like, what is it that, you know, wants to, to happen? And, and he has this beautiful thing that he writes in there about that he understood at some point that you know, he should stop wondering you know what, what life he's meant to live, but instead listen to the life that wants to be lived through him. So I think it's just such a beautiful way of saying it. And, and so this is just a wonderful little book um, that's been sort of one of these slow but total bestsellers. So that's a book I give away, I give away quite a bit. In the same vein, I've, I've given away another book called Working Identities. It's also around people who make fundamental career changes by a woman called Hermine, Hermine Ibarra. I don't know why, but I, I seem to just – maybe that's just the, the age we're at in our 40s or – but, you know, I have a lot of people, you know, contact me because they feel like they want to do something fundamentally different. And I've given away quite a few of Charles Eisenstein's books, you know, Sacred Economics, as just a wonderful book around, you know, how our whole monetary system, you know, is, is meant to change, how, you know, we might transition to something that looks more like the gift economy. And so for me, it's been usually impactful and inspirational. And most of the stuff that I do now is in the gift economy. Yeah. So that's some of the books that, that i like to give away.
0: Are there other thought leaders or folks that you look to as sort of this person or this organization is living the next economy or the the sort of the future of business? Are there folks who are either individuals or organizations that come to mind that you look to for inspiration?
1: I gave you some of the names, like, so. for instance, most Parker Palmer and Charles Eisenstein have been inspirational for me. Now, that might be very specific for me. But, you know, as I'm suddenly sort of thrown into the, the world sort of as a, as a public figure, right, as, as a sort of star in that admittedly really sort of narrow field of people who are interested in this, right, it's been interesting for me to see these two guys who continue leading very simple lives. Right, because sort of the standard narrative or standard image that we have in our mind and that certainly I see everybody sort of projecting onto me is so that everybody's expecting me now to, you know, spend my time in in airplanes and travel all over the world and give, you know, as many speaking engagements as I can and cash in on the thing and, you know, create a successful consulting business on it and because that's just, you know, our current story of of more is better and you know, more. So this is, you know, that this is your big break, this is your big chance. And so that obviously didn't feel right to me or didn't feel like what I was called to live. And so in these sense, like people like Parker Palmer or Charles Eisenstein have been interesting people to look at, you know, how how have they dealt with how have they dealt with it? And one thing that I'm always excited about is organizations who do really deep work and yet manage to do it on a on a massive scale, right? Something where sort of quality and quantity actually do meet. I'm impressed by, for instance, you know, Parker Palmer's Center for Courage and Renewal that he's created, where he's had, I think, fifty thousand or maybe a hundred thousand now teachers go through very deep retreats and just be fundamentally transformed as teachers, you know, in the way that you know they teach in, in schools. And you know, there's so many initiatives around schools, but so few that manage to scale. And so this is exciting for me. Or simply, you know, the nonviolent communication. i have mean, always been a huge fan of this and you know, wanted to see what impact they're having in the world and and so I was totally honored and amazed when I heard that reinventing organizations was sort of one of the big inspirations for their reinvention for the center of nonviolent communication. And they seem to be, I mean, if, if they really pull off sort of this new governance model that they have in plans, I mean, it, it's just going to be amazing. Or maybe, I don't know if you know the Mankind Project. It's this thing where this organization nonprofit that helps organize sort of rites of passages for men with this idea that we've lost track of what sort of a healthy masculine is like. right? We, In a narrative, we no longer want Sort of the the bully, you know, the you know, the man that you know that is uh, uh, close to his, his emotions, you know, the the macho man. Um, but what what is the alternative? You know, is you know is it sort of this this wimp, You know, this the man that always apologizes for for everything and for all the crimes being done in the name of mankind, you know, by man. And, and so they recognize that we're lacking a healthy idea of. of of masculine and they linked that to the fact that we no longer have rites of passages that all traditional societies have you know this moment when you're 15 16 when you you're being taught in very profound ways that you know my son now you're a man and you have these amazing powers that that come with that strength and now use it for for the good they had now also i think something like fifty thousand or a hundred thousand men around the world who've gone through these rites of passages and i've i've done it and i mean every single man who's done it i think has found that it was deeply transformative so yeah that was just like spontaneously something that came up it's like you know, these organizations who manage to do really deep stuff at a you know at a large level. I I find that very inspiring. I'm glad you spoke about at
0: least the mankind a friend of mine and act we were just talking about that two weeks ago, is what does it look like for the future of men to not be <laughs> you know how they've currently or they've been for so long? And yeah. so I I'll look into that. I'm really glad you mentioned that one. Maybe in the last few questions here, what do people never ask you that you wish they did?
1: So one question that comes to mind now, I'm talking specifically around people who are transforming organizations, you know, inspired and part by reinventing organizations. And one thing I noticed that I find myself doing with them pretty much every time is having a profound conversation around, why do you feel called to do this? So the question, I guess, is I would love some of the to to ask me is like, help me understand why I'm doing this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it would be so much easier and safer to just do sort of not. The traditional thing, um, maybe not safer, but easier. And what I find is that people often, you know, struggle to get others along, or at least aren't as powerful in getting other people in the organization along because they haven't yet really connected very deeply with what it is that is calling them to do that thing, right? And so they throw out concept there. You know, I think we should do self-management, and you know, I think we should do this, and we should. And then it's very easy to sort of attack these concepts and say, you know, oh, but self-management is right for us, and we're not ready, and we're not. But once they've connected to, sort of their their profound yearning or the pain, and they connect with some stories. And, and sometimes their stories, you know, all along their lives, like even from childhood, where they found that some things were just striking, and they become so incredibly powerful. It's, it's really because they fuel from something deep inside, and everybody just notices it. Everybody resonates, everybody wants to help and make that happen. And so, that this is, I think, really something profound I've noticed over the last few years in, in having these conversations. So, I think, really, one interesting conversation that I'd invite people into, like people who listen to this podcast. You know, if they're somewhere in a journey or just starting a journey to transform their organizations, before you do that, you know, find a good friend, you know, really deep, trusted friend, you know, who's, who's good at helping you sort things through and, you know, and ask that friend, why am I called to do this? And, and look for stories, not abstract concepts. I love that. If we
0: had another hour, I'd ask you. One <laughs> <laughs> um, of the last two questions here is, what do you need right now? Um, we af- we often ask guests, how can people help you grow this next economy?
1: By doing their thing and leaving me alone. No <laughs> <Like, laughs>
0: um,
1: <laughs> By sending you lots of emails, right? No, just kidding. <laughs> um, no, by just going out there and doing stuff. So what I've I've been trying to do is. Encourage other people to just go out there and do things. And and one of the things that have, have happened there's a whole newsletter and, and and media hub called Enlivening Edge that has grown around around the, the book. And one of the things is I haven't done anything for it. It's just people who felt that that needed to happen and they did it. And other people are doing meetups and and other people are creating you know book clubs and other people are doing CEO meetups. And and I just encourage everyone to just go out there and do it. And I don't want this whole you know the potential of all of this to be limited by sort of the few hours I can give it in, in a day. So. By any means, go, go out there and, and make stuff happen.
0: So, just for folks who would like more information, it's enliveningedge i think org. The, yeah, and then there's mm-hmm. the reinventing organizations website. Maybe just a few of the websites that are. Yeah, that there's more.
1: A website called reinventing organizations that has some and has all of these links. There is a, a wiki called it's reinventing organizations wiki all in one word .com. That sort of details these practices. And there's a group of people who are starting to do research on more organizations to fill the wiki with more knowledge. But the idea is to have sort of a central repository with more details than the book can have on each of these practices. Okay. So how do you make decisions in these organizations and what do you do about budgets? And so I think that's, that's a wonderful resource. And then I think the most important thing I think that needs to happen right now is that we share more stories. So I think that we're, you know, we're at this sort of tipping point for the narrative to change. Right. So when you talk about now organizations of thousands of people and no hierarchy whatsoever in a traditional sense, you know, only natural hierarchies, no bosses, no subordinates, no, you know, today that still sounds crazy. But, and the first time you read an article about an organization who does that and that is really successful, you go like, what? And then, the organization successful. That sounds crazy. But the, the second time you read about that, you go like, hmm that's interesting, you know, so that's maybe not so crazy, right? And then the third or fifth time you go like, and you go like, mm, that just becomes part of the narrative, right? And maybe at some point, you know, we'll have a tipping point where people will go like, oh, oh, so you, oh, you still have like a hierarchy, you still have a permit? Oh, okay, okay, that's okay. You know, like, I kind of, <laughs> um, and so I think one of the most urgent tasks right now is to write and write and write. And so I just love to see journalists, you know, go out there and, and write things and they can actually contact me and I will respond and give the names of organizations to, to research, but I'd also love to invite organizations who are in the middle of their transformation to write about it and, and write blogs about it. There's one or two organizations who've done that offer in is sort of smaller tech organizations, and they've had quite a following of people really following along. And so that, to me, seems the most crucial part. So yeah, thinking back to your question, that's, I think, what people really can do to sort of further this movement.
0: Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.